So good to have you here. My name is Matt, one of the pastors. If I haven't met you, I'm really glad that you're with us and want to invite you to open to Exodus chapter 3 in the Bible. You can uh, use one of the church Bibles we have on the seats in front of you if you need to or follow along in your own copy, uh, whatever you need to do to find Exodus chapter 3. We're starting in verse 16 and we're picking up where we left off last week. Pastor Kyle was preaching, did a great job taking us through the first chunk of Exodus 3 and so we're continuing our series that we started over a month ago now uh, in the book of Exodus, where little by little, as a church, we're walking through this book of the Bible and seeing what God has to say to us uh, each morning. But today, we're going to start a little bit differently. I don't normally talk politics from the front, but I do have to say something today. Recently, I came across a headline that I couldn't ignore, and the headline said this, Lincoln the Goat elected mayor of small Vermont town. Lincoln the Goat, elected mayor of small town in Vermont. Uh, the article went on to introduce us to Lincoln, this three-year-old Nubian goat that was elected and sworn in as mayor of Fairhaven, Vermont. Now, as ugly as our nation's politics have become, surely there's a better way forward than turning to the animal kingdom for guidance and electing a three-year-old Nubian goat to lead us. There has got to be a better option, right? Has it really come to this? You know, the headline was puzzling, I'll be honest, but as you may have guessed, there's more to the story than just the headline. There were some key details left out of the headline. This was an incomplete picture because the story went on to explain that Lincoln, our dear goat friend, was elected as the honorary mayor of this town. It was a sweet little small town competition, a fundraiser electing an honorary goat. And so this goat had no actual legal power, <laughs> no role in conducting government affairs. And so I think as a society, we dodged a bullet there. Although, again, maybe some of you feel like, you know what, I'll take my chances with the animal kingdom. I'll take my chances with a goat leader. We'll see. Um, but again, the headline and the intro to the story, was it was misleading. Not all the information was there. It was kind of an incomplete picture of the situation which led to some inaccurate conclusions. And that's what happens when we don't have all the information, when we have an incomplete picture of the situation, we don't always draw the right conclusions. And the same is true, the same is true of our relationship with God. Right? Sometimes we have an incomplete picture of who God is, we're operating, many of us, on unlimited information about God. Maybe we know some things about the past and what God did in the Old Testament and some Bible stories. Or maybe some of us could talk about what we sense God doing in our lives today or the way God makes us feel now. Or we talk about maybe things we hope that God will do in the future. But we don't always have an informed, complete picture of who God is and what it means to follow him. This is what I love about Exodus chapter 3 that we're studying today. It gives us so much of the picture of who God is. It tells us and reveals for us the character of God, who God is, what God is like, what he has done, what he will do. And so we're going to jump in and learn together about who God is. Again, we're in verse 16. Pastor Kyle started the chapter for us 
last week where God shows up to Moses in this miraculous way in a, a bush that is on fire. It's burning, but it's not burnt up or destroyed. It's rather incredible. And God is revealing himself to Moses. He gives Moses his divine name. This is this famous passage in all of Scripture. And then God calls Moses to go to Pharaoh. And he's going to use Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. And so we pick up in verse 16. Look at it with me. God speaking to Moses here says, Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt. So God is giving Moses some instructions here. Here's what I want you to do. Go assemble the elders of Israel, bring the leaders of the people together, and here's what I want you to say to them. And notice how God wants Moses to start. Because the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me. So God wants him to start by pointing them to God's past, what God has done in the past. And we talked about this a little bit as we started our study in the book of Exodus, that Exodus is the second book in the Bible, and we have to know a little bit about what happened in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, to know what's going on in the narrative here. And so if we look back to Genesis, we see this key chapter, chapter 12, where God shows up to this man named Abram, or maybe we, you've heard him as Abraham, and God appears to him and calls him and enters into this relationship with Abraham, this covenant. The biblical concept of a covenant is this binding agreement that God makes with people with certain expectations on each side. And God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your family, your descendants. I'm going to multiply your family and your family will be a blessing to the nations. And so God rolls out his plan of redemption and rescue for all the world and he decides he's going to use this family. The family of Abraham, and then Isaac, and Jacob. And so, here in Exodus 3, as God comes to Moses now, he wants Moses to know, and he wants the leaders of the people of Israel to know who he is. And earlier in chapter 3, in verse 6, God identifies himself in the same way as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he designates himself the same way at the end of chapter 2. If you look at chapter 2, verse 24, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so multiple times, God is reminding his people and us as we read it of his promises in history. God wants us to know what he has done in the past, that he has been at work long before we were born and long before Moses was around. And so as the leaders of Israel would hear this, oh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared, that would mean something to them. Because they would know the story. They would say, oh, we know about Abraham. And, and we know about Isaac. And we know about our father Jacob. We know this God that you're talking about. So, some light bulbs are coming on for them as they hear about God now appearing to Moses. But I thought as I read this, I was like, I wonder if today we would be able to have the same awareness about who God is and what God has done in the past. 
Again, the, the leaders of Israel, they would know, oh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That makes sense to us. But for us, as we think about what God has done in the past, would we be able to, to say much about who he is and what he's done? And I don't mean, do we know the story of Abraham specifically from Genesis 12 or Isaac or Jacob, but do we know the story of Scripture? As we think about who God is and what God has done in the Bible, would we be able to fill in a lot of the blanks? Do we know the story? Do we know what God has done? See, today, there have been studies done on this. Largely, as a culture, we're becoming biblically illiterate. As a culture, we're becoming biblically illiterate, where we don't know the story like people did maybe decades ago or even generations ago. This study uh, found recently within the past few years that people who go to church, uh, less than half of them read their Bible more than once a week. Less than half of churchgoers read their Bibles more than once a week. Uh, the same study found that, that people had a hard time identifying like what stories were from the Bible and what stories were like pop culture, like Hunger Games, Harry Potter, stuff like that. Like people couldn't identify even basic Bible stories. Uh, over half of the people surveyed said that good deeds will help you earn a spot in heaven. Almost half of the people surveyed said that there are actually many ways to get to heaven, not just Jesus. And nearly 60% of churchgoers, almost two-thirds of people, said that the Holy Spirit is not a person, not uh, a personal God, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They said, well, the Holy Spirit's it's kind of an impersonal force like something in Star Wars that's just out there, which is, again, not accurate to the teaching of Scripture. And so th this study, again, in a number of different ways, just showed that we have a lot of holes in our picture of who God is. A lot of us don't have the picture very filled in about who God is and what he is like and what he has done. I don't, I don't bring that up to, to shame you, to make anyone feel bad, but just to point out that I think in general we're not as familiar with the God of Scripture as generations used to be. Which is kind of interesting if you think about it. If you think about in human relationships, in any sort of friendship that you strike up or maybe you start dating someone new, don't, don't you want to know a little bit about their history? Don't you want, you want to know a little bit about where they've been and where they come from? Like imagine if your, your son or your daughter comes home and they tell you about this new guy or this new gal that they're dating. You'd have some questions, right? You'd be like, well, okay, uh, this new guy you're spending a lot of time with. Well, you know, where, where is he from? It'd be weird if they were to answer, oh, I don't know. If you're like, well, okay, well, I mean, where do they go to school? Have they gone to school? Like where where'd they grow up? Do they go to school around here? Uh, I don't know. What, you know, do they, what do they do for work? Or what have they been doing the past couple of years work-wise? Do they, do they have an income? You know, uh, I don't know. But we have a lot of fun together. You'd say, cool, hey, I'm glad you're having fun with this person, but aren't those some details you'd want to know? Like, wouldn't you want to know who this person is and where they've been and maybe previous job situations or cool experiences they've had, cool travel that they've done or prior relationships or what their family is like? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you want to know those things? We, of course, we would. And so the same is true when it comes to our relationship with God. Shouldn't we want to get to know him, who he is, how he's shown himself to act in history? So we can know about God as we come to his word. 
And so rather than just rushing, this is what we do sometimes. We rush to, well, what is God doing now? What, is wanna, what does God want to do for me in my life and change for me now or change in the future? Those are fine questions to ask, but we also should be asking, well, who is this God we are seeking to follow? Who is God as he has revealed himself in his word? See, we can look to scripture and see that it's revelation. We believe that this book is not just human beings trying to make sense of God and writing down some thoughts. We believe it's God actually making himself known to us. And so we can encounter God in his word as he shows us who he is. As we read it, we come to know a God who is creator. As we look to Genesis 1, the first page of the Bible, God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing, and then God made everything. God is uncreated. He is eternal, and by his word and by his power, he created everything that exists, the stars and the galaxies and the universe, and he sustains all of life in our world. We find in Scripture this God who is transcendent, who is big and glorious and beyond our complete understanding. He is majestic and powerful and deserves our worship and our awe before him. And yet we find in Scripture this God who is imminent. He is near, personal. He is close to you and to me. We can know him in an intimate way. In the Bible, we see a God who is acting in history, not a God who is removed from the details of life, not a God who is uninterested in what happens to you, but a God who intervenes and is at work in the situations and circumstances of our lives. And in the scriptures, we find a God who is full of grace and redemption, fixing what is broken, healing, forgiving, gracious, time and time again. We could go on on and on and on about who God is. But the encouragement for us today from this is, do we know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Do we know what God has done in the past? We can't just rely on assumptions that we have or kind of quippy hot takes on social media, you know, crafty little bite-sized theology things that are out there in the world that sound really good. Maybe they're true, maybe they're not. We can't just rely on the insights of our pastors, or leaders in the church, we have to, for ourselves, each of us, get into the Word of God and grow to understand who God is and engage with Him for ourselves. We can read about Him and come to know Him. And so a simple encouragement is we can be each on a, a daily Bible reading plan. I know many of us are already doing that. Where we just take a little bit of time each day to work through the Bible. Anybody have a smartphone in here? Anybody? Okay. I know more people actually have smartphones than raise their hands. That's okay. But there's a, an app, the Bible app. It's great. It's free. The YouVersion Bible app. There's uh, plenty of different versions of the Bible on there, um, modern translations that are really helpful to read. Again, we preach from the NIV, really accessible, readable. There's also uh, Bible reading plans on the app, again, where you can just, it'll remind you and say, hey, you're going to work through the Bible in a year. And so today, read chapter one of this, and chapter one of this, and chapter two of this, and so on. It just helps walk you through. Sometimes, again, we have good intentions. We'd, we'd love to maybe be in the Bible more, but this is just a simple tool to help us engage with God in Scripture. So I encourage you to download that app and put that to use if you haven't already. This is a, one of the reasons we encourage small groups, right? Because we don't want to just hear about 
uh, Exodus and the message on Sunday, but then we can come back in a small group, read the text again, talk about the passage, talk about what God is doing, and that's a way that we grow in understanding who God is. And so, Moses in Exodus 3 is reminded that God is the God of the past. But this encounter shows us that we're not just talking about what God has done in the past. We're also talking about what God is doing in the present, how God is at work in the life of Moses and the people of Israel. Look again at the passage. It says, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. So God continues with Moses. Not only am I the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am the God who is at work now. And I have watched over you. It says, Pastor Kyle talked about this last week a little bit, this Hebrew idiom that is used here. Uh, when he says, I've watched over you, he's not just saying like, I've, you know, time to time glanced over, taken notice about what's going on. It means much more than that. He is carefully monitoring his people. He is aware of what they're going through. He is poised to act on their behalf. And then verse 17, I will bring you up out of your misery in Egypt. And you and the elders will go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. God has met with us. He's here. This is such a, a turning point in the story of Exodus. God calling Moses. God meeting with Moses and eventually with the people in this powerful way, initiating these events that will lead to their freedom and their rescue. And so God doesn't want Moses and the people just to think about, oh, hey, I've done some cool stuff back then. God's done some cool stuff in history, but look at what God is doing for them now. He's going to lead Moses and the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Quite literally, their circumstances are going to drastically change as God is going to lead them to freedom and this new life with him. And I know that for some of us here this morning, we desire a drastic change in our circumstances much like the people of Israel did. Maybe we're in difficult situations, feeling trapped, feeling overwhelmed, hurting, or discouraged, and we desperately want God to step in and do something big. And so we can look to the Exodus, Exodus narrative and see that God does do big things. He can step into even the most desperate, dark situations and transform them and lead us out of them, sometimes God does change the circumstances around us in, in a powerful, life-giving way, and he leads us out of desperate times. But sometimes the circumstances around us don't change, especially today we see that God is with us and his transformation, the power that he brings in our lives is not necessarily external changes, not necessarily circumstances being 
different, but God transforming us from within. God doing a profound spiritual work in our hearts. And so God's work in Exodus is supposed to give us this paradigm pointing us forward to the work of Jesus and the rescue and the freedom that he can bring in our lives today. See, the bigger picture of the gospel and of this story is that the problem, the biggest problem that you face is not really out there. The biggest problem that you face is not an issue with your circumstances or with with someone being mean to you or harsh to you, even if horrible things are, are happening to you. That's not the biggest problem in your life. The biggest problem in our lives is is separation from God because of our sin. That's what the Bible outlines, that we, because of our sin, have been separated from God and are worthy of judgment. We're worthy of condemnation before a holy and righteous God. But the good news is that God does not leave us there. But he, in Christ, offers us forgiveness and grace and mercy and adoption into his family to be beloved sons and daughters. And I want us to see how the New Testament talks about life in Christ. Here's what happens when you become a Christian. Romans 6 says in verse 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And so in the New Testament, there's this idea that if we put our faith in Jesus, we are united to him. Our life is joined to him. We have union with Christ, which means that in him, we have died to our old self, When we come to him, we are crucified with him. Our old life is gone, and now we are this new creation. We have this new identity as a child of God. And the text says, verse 7, we have been set free from sin. We will also live now with Jesus, because he didn't stay dead, but he rose from the grave. And so in Christ, we can have this new life of obedience, where we can walk with God, In the power of the Spirit, learning to please Him and obey Him. When we become a Christian, we are transformed. We are renewed. We are washed. And yes, we still struggle. Yes, we still have challenges. We are not perfect. But we have this new identity that we continually learn how to live into as children of God. No longer enslaved to sin. No longer awaiting judgment and condemnation and death. Because a little bit later in Romans... It tells us there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We can stand before God forgiven, righteous, not because of our works, but because of what Jesus has done for you and for me if we trust in him. And so this might all just sound to you like a bunch of theological God talk and kind of cloud, you know, talk on the clouds that's not really real to our lives. Like, what does that really change about our situation now? If God is present with us now, this sounds like just kind of some ethereal, lofty idea that doesn't really impact my day-to-day life. And of course, it has eternal implications that we are forgiven, 
can look forward to life forever with God, but also today it brings changes. It brings true peace into our hearts because we know that our life is secure in Christ. We don't have to fear the future. We don't have to worry about what tomorrow will bring. We know that we belong to God. When we come to Jesus, we have such joy in our lives, joy because we now belong, we now are accepted as a child of God, we now are welcomed home, we now are loved perfectly by God, welcomed into his family. When you become a Christian, you experience peace, you experience joy, you experience a steadiness in your heart because your, your hope and your future is not based on your feelings or your current circumstances or your performance. Your future and your hope is based in Christ, his finished work, which will not waver. You don't have to constantly search for significance or compare or manipulate situations because you have all you need in Christ. And so knowing Jesus now does bring great transformation and freedom and change, now and forever. And then, not just at the point of conversion, but then as you and I walk with Jesus and we learn to follow him throughout our lives, we continually learn how to be obedient, how to do what he's called us to do. And this is a process of sanctification where we're changed and we grow to become more and more like Jesus. And so God is not just about the things he's done in the past, as important as those things are. God is also about what he's doing now in your life, the transformation he wants to bring in your heart. If you haven't put your trust in him, this is an opportunity to do that, to believe in Jesus and follow him. Or if you're already a believer, to continue to walk with him and see more and more the joy in the life that he wants to bring as you obey him. But as you may have guessed, we're not done yet in this text. God wants to remind Moses and the people of what he's done in the past and what he is doing in the present, but also in the future. Look with me at verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I'll make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. We're going to talk about this whole plundering thing in just a second. We'll get there. But first, notice clearly from the text that God knows what's coming. God looks ahead to the future with complete clarity. And what does he say to Moses here in verse, or excuse me, before this, right, in verse 18, he says, hey, you're going to go to the elders, and they're going to listen to you, okay? And then you're going to go to Pharaoh, and he's not going to listen to you. I know that he's not going to let you go. And so, verse 20, I'm going to stretch out my hand, I'm going to perform these wonders, and, and then he's going to let you go. And then, verse 22, you're going to plunder the Egyptians. And so we see God kind of just laying this plan out for Moses and eventually for the people, saying, here's what's coming. With complete clarity, God looks ahead. 
says, say this, do this, they're going to say this, and you're going to respond this way. One commentator said, the people will believe, the king will be hardened, the Egyptians will be plagued, the deliverance will occur, and finally the Egyptians will be despoiled. Today, some of us question, does God really know the future? Does he really know what's coming? And that happens on a popular level. Like maybe we just kind of wonder to ourselves, does God really know what's coming? Is God really at work in all the details of the future and driving all of history towards his purposed end? But also on a, a theological, scholarly level, people will debate, is the future really set? Does God really know what he's going to bring into the world? Or is it sort of open? So people wonder, does God know? I think the answer is yes, he does. And texts like this show us. He's just laying it out for Moses. Here's what's coming. Here's how they're going to respond. Here's what I'm going to do in response. Here's what's going to happen next. Here's what's going to happen next. Here's how I want you to act. He knows what's coming. He knows the obstacles ahead. He knows the results and what they will be and how it will all work out. And notice that we don't have that sort of capacity, do we? God does but we don't. We can't give this level of clarity in our counsel to people. Like, hey, this week, let me tell you what's coming. You're going to talk to this person tomorrow. They're going to say this. They're going to remind you of this. Then you're going to go and talk to Susie, and Susie's going to get mad about this. But then it's okay. You're going to say this in response. And then, you know, I can't lay out my week like that. Like, I, I can in some way plan based on reasonable expectations about what's ahead, but things may change. Things come up that we're not aware of, and so you and I can't, with this level of clarity, unpack the future, but God can. He's sovereign. He knows. He brings all things to be. Also, we see in this that there's no true threat to the plans of God. But even the perceived obstacles are not real threats. Verse 20 says, I'll stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. And after that, he will let you go. See, it was common for the Egyptians in the ancient world to speak about Pharaoh and his mighty hand. They would use that image to speak of his power what he was capable of, his sovereignty, his dominion in a sense. And here God is saying, hey, I'm going to stretch out my hand and I'm going to show my power over Pharaoh. I'm going to show who is really in control. There's no competition between Pharaoh and God. God knows what is coming. He will accomplish his will perfectly. And he points here to the plagues that are to come, which we'll get in the weeks and months ahead. We'll jump into those. And highlighting this even more is verse 21 and 22. I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. Now, ladies, please do not make this your life verse. Okay, this is not <laughs> instructions for living in 2019. Like, hey... It's in the Bible. Look, go to everyone around you, ask for clothes and jewelry. That's just what I'm supposed to do. It's what God wants for me. What can I do? Um, this is an important uh, example of learning how to read the Bible, right? We don't just helicopter into here and say, well, look, this is exactly what I'm supposed to do today. We can say, no, this is what God was saying in a specific situation in history to the Israelites in Egypt and understand that this was for them, but we wouldn't apply this in the same way to 
us today. So that's first word of caution. But what's going on here? This, this word plunder is, is a word that speaks of victory, okay? Military victory. Plundering was something that would happen when people would gather up the spoils of victory, when there was a, a city that would fall in war or soldiers left on the battlefield. You would plunder and take jewelry and clothing and valuable things, and so you would be gaining lots of wealth and uh, possessions. And so God is saying, hey, you are going to be victorious over the Egyptians. Not only are you going to go free, but you're going to take a lot of stuff with you, <laughs> a lot of possessions, and it's going to show my power. You're not going to win this stuff in war. You're not going to fight and have a, a battle and get all this stuff. You're just simply going to ask, and the Egyptians are going to give it to you, and it will show God's total victory and power over the Egyptians. It's going to show how mighty he truly is. And so, God wants us to see that he knows the future. He's working all things out. And if we truly believe that, we can trust and have confidence in the present. As I said earlier, we don't have to worry. We don't have to fear what tomorrow will bring, what crazy political headlines about goats we will read. The future is secure in God's plan. And so we can trust him. And not just a passive trust, like, hey, I'm going to be okay, but a trust that leads us to action, that leads us to love people boldly, to take risks, right? Sometimes when we're afraid, we say, I'm not going to do anything risky or anything costly or anything sacrificial because I have to make sure that I'm okay and I'm covered for tomorrow. But if we believe that God is planning all things out in advance, he knows the future and his plan is perfect, then we can take steps without fear to love people, to give and be generous with our money, with our time, to care for those in need, to go above and beyond in loving people. And so the question is for each of us, is there something that God is prompting us towards, some action step that he wants us to do? A step in our lives, a way to love someone, something that he's calling us to, maybe a change in direction in our lives in some way that maybe we've been hesitant about, we've been fearful about. Because you see with Moses, God lays all this out for him, the God of the past, the present, and the future. And it's not just so Moses can say, oh, that's cool. I'm going to go journal about that and have another cup of coffee tomorrow morning and tell my friends. No, it's, it's so that Moses will take action, so that Moses will go and do what God has called him to do. And he still gets a little caught up along the way. We're going to see next week that he doesn't Moses doesn't handle things perfectly, so we'll talk about that. But the question for each of us is, is there something God is prompting you to? A step of obedience that you've been hesitant towards. As we see that God is the God of the past, present, and future. What would we do differently if we were fully confident that God was with us? If we really believe that God is the God of the past, present, and future, what would we change in our lives? How would we respond differently? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come to know you and see who you are and hear your voice in your word. I pray, God, that you would guide us as we 
seek to be obedient to you. God, we want to be about your business here in Benicia in the Bay Area. We want to do what you want us to do. We want to love people well. We want to point people to you, Jesus. We want to serve people sacrificially in your name. Pray that you would help us. Give us wisdom. Give us insight to know what next steps need to happen in our lives that you're calling us to. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you are our hero, our savior, our king. It's in your name we pray. Amen.